This is Meet the Problem Solvers. I'm Judy Perlman. Uh, tonight we have a very interesting guest. I'm joined tonight by Professor Julian Ajiman. He's on the faculty at Tufts University. He's been working for many years in some very important areas having to do with sustainability and um, justice. And we're here to start unpacking something that's a pretty interesting question that actually we all think about all day long, which is food. And then we're going to start unpacking that with the question of local food. What is local food? What does that even mean? And where do we want to go as in our conversation about local food? So Julian, welcome. Thank you, Judy. Thanks very much for coming on. Well, you want to frame this up for us just a bit? Yeah. So um, we live in an intercultural society. We, we have people from all around the world who've come to Massachusetts, come to the United States, come to our cities, our rural areas. What does local mean in an intercultural society? Who gets to define what is local and what especially is local food? Especially when some people who've come as immigrants bring with them their idea of what local is. And what local is may mean what I want to eat, what I want to bring to my family party, what I want to be doing. And so I think what you're suggesting is that the restaurants that are high-end restaurants that talk about locavore foods and locally bought and locally grown, that's a, that's a slice of the story, but it's not the whole story. And I think what you're really going to take us through today is what are we limited by and what do we lose and what do we lose out on mm. if we keep ourselves with that sort of Eurocentric view. Sure. Well, let's take a step back. Um, when we think about local food, we think about sustainably produced food, we think about sustainable agriculture, all of these things that are good and that are very fashionable at the moment. But have we ever stopped to think that the word local could be an exclusive word? It could be a word that means this is the way we do things uh, you've come from abroad, you've got to do things our way. And I think what we'd all like to see is a bigger movement for sustainable food, for local food. But what about the Africans in DC who drive out to farms in Maryland to pick African crops that the Maryland farmers are growing because they're no longer growing tobacco? What about the farmers, the Chinese Canadian farmers in um, the Vancouver area who are growing Chinese crops and African crops for the growing uh, international markets living within Vancouver. What about the Filipinos in San Diego who when asked what local food is they say it's our food we grow it in our yards we eat it in our restaurants. Clearly there is a contestation over what local is and as a geographer I can tell you there is no one definition of local Local is whatever somebody can persuade you it is. So I think, you know, what I'm interested in is rethinking this idea of the local. Is it a geographic concept or is it a cultural mm -hmm. concept that our increasingly um, diverse and different populations are going to make us think about? The end game here, of course, is if we can be reflexive and um, inclusive on an idea of the local, maybe we'll build a bigger food movement. Right, right. And when we think about what food and farming is economically, 
if, if we're really looking at it in a very limited way, there's a whole economy being growing, growing probably more rapidly that we're just not even kind of taking into consideration. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, take some of these farmers in Maryland. Um, you know, the state of Maryland for the last 20 years or so has been trying to get farmers out of tobacco and they've been trying to get farmers to diversify and they've been offering grants for this. And the state of Maryland uh, extension program, the sorry, the University of Maryland extension program has been looking at what African crops will grow in Maryland. This isn't charity, this is a business. Right. So right. there is a business opportunity here in growing crops, culturally appropriate crops that our increasingly diverse populations want to eat. It's a business. Yeah, and, and if we don't actually think about it as a business, if we don't think about it in that way, we're just not thinking about the world we live in with accuracy and with a vision of the future. Well, and I think this is one of the problems. One of the problems, I think, with the concept of local, it kind of fossilizes our thinking yeah. in interesting. a way that makes us think of the family farm as being redolent of an America that's in the past. And we see these buy fresh, buy local campaigns and all of the imagery surrounding that is very much imagery of a past America, not the present, nor certainly a future America that I think we're moving towards and many other people think we're moving towards. So one could say that given the times that we live in politically, um, the, the xenophobia, the nativist sentiments could become infused with these localist sentiments to exclude rather than to include. And of course, my desire as, a, as an urban planning academic and as a, an advocate for local, some form of local food is how do we get a bigger, bigger slice of the population thinking about the local? And just one thing I think um, that's really important here is a concept related to localism, but it's called translocalism. There's a lot of evidence that new immigrants to the US bring with them their own local. And nothing more so than food. Food is like the umbilical link between where you're from and where you are mm -hmm. now. So it's a safety net in many ways. And who are we to say your food isn't local food when this concept of translocalism is being utilized by immigrants, it's being utilized. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, there are um, Latino immigrants who go and walk along the banks of the River Charles and they love an area of Herta Park in Alston where there are willows. Guatemalans love willows because it's redolent of home. So there are links between home and here, whether they are food links or whether they are landscape links. And I think we need to be aware of this, especially as urban planners, as our cities become more diverse. Right. And if we don't, if we don't take an expansive view, if we don't encourage and in fact enforce an expansive view, people who are maybe foraging for something they really like, they become criminals as opposed to somebody else who is foraging for, you know, white folks food. It's like, of course you pull yeah, that up. Yeah. Well, you know, and foraging, now you bring it up, uh, is a very interesting uh, uh, idea. It seems that every ethnic group forages 
research in Seattle, in Baltimore, uh, around the country has shown that different ethnic groups forage for different things. And I'm afraid it's the cities, the parks departments that are way behind the curve on this. They don't want people foraging for liability reasons. But given that we have food deserts, given that food is such a great way of bringing people together, the ability to forage would seem to me to be a great opportunity for people to come together over food. I'm a Chinese American, this is what I go for. I'm an Italian American, this is what I go for. I'm an African American, this is what I go for. Food is, is a great point of contact between different cultures. Mm -hmm. And if we start to be prescriptive about what is local, about what is um, the right food to eat, then we are going to alienate certain people and develop exclusivities in our food. Right. I'm struggling to get a slide up because Julian brought a slide that I think is very interesting. Um, but now I, I think I can't make this happen, so I'm sorry. We'll just talk about what it is. Um, hmm. Well, let's get us back on. What this slide is, is a picture of a very traditional looking older couple, white couple, they were farmers. They've been farmers for a very long time. They're tobacco farmers. You kind of mentioned them sure. before. And they have a hand-lettered sign outside of their land that says African produce. And it made me, and so they have repurposed their farming and their sense of themselves mm -hmm. as producers to deal with this new market. And when you talked about translocal, it also made me think about that sort of cross-cutting. Yeah. I mean, these people are, they've found a market. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's brilliant. They have, and uh, uh, sadly, actually, one of my students did some research and we found that uh, George Bowling uh, has actually passed on since this picture in 2011, uh, but the farm is still there and it's still selling produce uh, to this growing uh, African market. Let me just go and bring in another layer of this, this, this conundrum, if you like, about the local. There is an assumption in the alternative food movement that local means more environmentally friendly, more socially just. Well, research has shown that that's not the case. There is no reason why a farm, just because it is a small local farm, should be any more socially just than a mm -hmm. large farming operation. Uh, I could take you to farms in all parts of the US where workers are mistreated in small farms and in large farms. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems I think we have with the concept of the local as it is constructed by the alternative food movement is the local has become the end rather than the means. The ends should be a more just and sustainable food system. Perhaps localism is part of the means to get there. But we shouldn't simply valorize the local with no evidence yeah. that it is any more socially just or environmentally friendly. It's more visible to us because we can go and visit these farms much more easily than yeah. we can go and visit the huge, the huge great, agribusiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right, right. So I just think we need to be, you know, very careful when we valorize the local. What actually are we valorizing? And in valorizing our version of the local, are we simply weaving exclusivities into a narrative about food? Yeah that don't need to be there. And that if we were more flexible about what the local was and allowed people to think of translocalism, 
a cultural local, then we could build a bigger movement for socially just and environmentally friendly food. And economic growth. And economic and growth as right, well. Right. Absolutely. You know, it, absolutely true. Yeah. Tobacco is, was, was last millennium. Now we're going for African produce. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, that's, and I don't look at those people. I wish you guys could see this picture. Come to our Facebook page. We'll have it up there. Yeah. Um, they don't look to me like they are sort of uh, social. They don't seem to be people who think of themselves in the cutting edge of a social change movement. No, they're not. I mean, George and Julia Bowling are, were um, good old American entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They see an opportunity. 120,000 Africans in the DC metro area, many of whom are diplomats, doctors, lawyers, professors, they're middle and upper middle class people. They want to eat locally grown African food. They don't want it flown in. They see a market, they've exploited yeah. the market. So, so it's good American entrepreneurialism. <laughs> this is Meet the Problem Solvers. I'm Judy Perlman. My guest tonight is Julian Adjaman from uh, Tufts and all kinds of other places that he has been and worked. And he is here helping us think through our, and I was going to say part of it is the simplistic nature mm. of local food. Local food seems good. I do local food. I feel good about doing that. I'm the local corn. It's really good. Mm -hmm. there, it's, it's almost... Um, it, it's a way to stay in a very Eurocentric space without being reflective. Yes. And, and congratulating ourselves for what we're doing. But it's actually, it, it, you know, the, when the barrier is there, then we're not really doing very what we want to be doing. No. And, and, Citizens well, of the world. You know, look, let me, let me give you another example. I mean, if we think about the wider project of sustainability and sustainable communities, one concept is localism that is one of the pillars. Another implication of sustainability is less is more. It's about giving something up. That's another pillar. So local and less are two of the great pillars of sustainability. Go down the road to Roxbury and tell people you need to do, make do with less. Judy, you and I can make do with less very easily. How do you tell people who don't have anything to live on less? They'll laugh at you. So we have to think about how do we frame sustainability in ways that People can buy into it. Well, sorry, it's so wrong. I shouldn't <laughs> say buy into it. How do we frame sustainability in ways that engage people rather than put them off? Because as, I've, as I think we've established, these two words, local and less, can be very problematic with certain groups of people. So how do we frame sustainability in a way that is um, inclusive? And this has been a problem for as long as the environmental and sustainability movements have been around. Um, that they have been seen to be elitist. They've seen to be, they've been seen to be caring more about the planet than the people on the planet. So these are real problems. These are real issues. And if we want to, as you and I do, want to grow the movement for sustainability, we have to think of new ways of engaging people other than localism, and less. What are those ways? We need to think about that. Yeah, yeah. And 
you said something before the show that I don't quite remember what it was, but it was about the sustainability movement having started in a fairly white, upper-middle-class sensibility and being grounded there, and so it was very hard to go beyond mm. that. Can you remember what that, yeah. that sort of that, know, look, that, that uh, dynamic was? There, there is um, literature, there are organizations that really have shown us that basically the environmental movement came from a very particular set of ideas about landscapes, about wilderness, about biodiversity. Where did humans fit into right, this? Right. And it wasn't really until the 1980s, 70s and 80s when the environmental justice movement came about and started to say, hang on, you know, we in the inner city, we people of color, we low income people, we Native Americans, we care about the environment, but we are living in environments where there are toxic waste dumps, or where the bus service doesn't work and we rely on buses, or where the roads are too busy for us to cycle um, and our mm -hmm. kids get killed very easily on these roads. We're going to come up with a definition of environment that is more anthropocentric than your definition, mm -hmm. which is really about preserving wilderness. Right. So that's what it was. It was that's, sort of like, yeah, let's preserve yeah. wilderness sure. elsewhere as opposed to, as let's, opposed to let's yeah, in our home, in yeah, our exactly. nation, in our country, exactly. in our state, in our city. What yeah. does that mean? What and, does it and, mean? And so I think the wider point here is... Who gets to define the narrative? Who gets to say what the words mean? Local, less, environment, sustainability. Who gets to define these? Because whoever gets to define these phrases gets to set the agenda. And if it is elite groups setting the agenda, then it rarely, if ever, concerns the concerns of right. uh, people who are dispossessed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really an interesting thing to think just, you know, as someone who hasn't been in sustainability all this sure. all this time. But yes, it really was sort of the wild the wilds of the rest of the world. And now that I've been working in homelessness and poverty for sure. a long time, these things are so obvious. I mean, yeah. lower income people are where toxins are. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, and if you think about some of the, the classic literature of environmentalism, Thoreau, uh, John Muir, you know, this was not about the concerns of urban America. This was a very rarefied set of concerns. It, personally, I'm fascinated by that. My first degree was geography and botany. I know all about these environmental theories and ideas, but now, as a, living in a, an urban environment, I and as a, as a professor in urban planning, I can see how we have unnecessarily in many ways excluded people from a movement that we know needs to right, succeed. Needs, yes, it and needs, needs to, to be succeed. diversified. And it, it needs, needs to be diversified, right. yeah. And you know, one, one point that I think is very important, does your organization, does your environmental organization, does your food organization, does your sustainability organization look like the communities it serves? Because going forward, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for these organizations to get a message across if they do not look like the communities they're yeah. serving. Yeah. They will not be seen as legitimate. They will not be trusted. 
they will not be seen by funders, I think, as legitimate. And so I think there's a survival element for a lot of these organizations. And, you know, hand on your heart, viewers or viewer, uh, hand on your heart, look at your organization, whatever organization yeah. it is, do you look like the people that you serve? Yeah, well, that's a, it's been a theme that's come up on this show a few times. Sure. Um, and it's a painful one. You know, here we are, we're working hard, we believe so strongly, but you're right, if the narrative starts wherever it is, like homelessness is a terrible thing and we think you should go into that kind of house when you've done X, Y, and Z. Yeah. That then becomes the, the framing and the narrative that you have to work really hard to overcome. Yeah. So when we ask the question, who gets to say what is local food, that's a really big question. It's a very simple question to ask. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, you know, um, I. At this semester, I'm teaching a class on food justice. And, you know, my students, this is one, this local issue is one of the really big ones because, of course, like you, most of them hadn't problematized, hadn't thought that there was a problem with this notion of the local. But in a class a couple of days ago, another issue came up, allied. We were talking about uh, federal food programs and we were talking about SNAP, supplemental nutrition. Uh, and what was really interesting, one student said, what if um, the committee or the group of people that decided on SNAP benefits, what if that was predominantly recipients? Mm -hmm. How would SNAP look? Because at the moment, what we have is essentially a punitive system. You're punished for being poor. You're told what you can eat. You're told what you can buy. Um, we police the poor in a sense, in a way that we don't police the, uh, the rich. Again, contestation over food, a basic, basic right of us all. So local, SNAP, less, sustainability environment. Who gets to define the agenda really does matter. Yeah. And um, you know, one of the solutions I'd like to see is a much more diverse and different staffing of these food organizations, of committees that decide on benefits, um, on local organizations, boards. We need to have a very different look to these organizations. Otherwise, as our cities and towns get more different and diverse, these organizations will not be seen as legitimate. Yeah. And perhaps they shouldn't be, because they perhaps shouldn't. they're not yeah, legitimate. Yeah. And, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. Maybe other organizations yeah. will come to replace these organizations. Well, maybe so. So this is Meet the Problem Solvers. We're talking today about sort of unpacking the issue of food and local food as a template, as a, as a, a narrative to look at inclusion, exclusion, and who's, 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 who names the narrative, sets the narrative, and how do you have to... So here we come to our takeaway part. Okay. How do we now turn this into becoming activists? Well, the good news is that there are around 50 farms around the country um, new routes in San Diego, um, new entry farms in Lowell, which my university is an active part of, where um, new Americans from around the world are getting a first footing into farming. So there is an awareness. There is awareness and there is a movement afoot to bring 
um, these new ideas about farming to the United States. That's, that's, that's great news. But what I really want to see is more of the organizations that, that we've mentioned um, really starting to engage with some of these ideas that are difficult to talk about. I want to see the, the, the organizations starting to realize that these ideas are not so much problematic, but they are opportunities yeah. to bring in new constituencies. Um, and it, it's, it's so easy to think, oh my God, uh, he's telling us that local isn't local. What, what's he talking about? There's opportunities here. There are great opportunities, and we don't need to lose any of the, um, you know, the pride at growing things locally, but let's look at what we're growing locally, and let's think locally and translocally. Let's, let's bring in, let's be much more inclusive in what we consider to be local than yeah, I we mean, currently do. I, I go to the farmer's market, and yeah. you know, it, it's pretty much the crops I'm used to. Sure. And yet, sometimes I really try new ones. I think that would be pretty cool if we could incentivize you know, this is a different farmer that has different crops. Sure. Let's bring them along for, and see what happens. Yeah, I think, uh, and you know, this is, again, this is happening in certain places, but I want to see, um, you know, much more. How can municipalities as well start to enable um, this, uh, this growing number of people who are coming to the U.S.? How can municipalities enable, you know, community gardens to be more used by immigrant right. groups and such. And I think we've got an opportunity here through the Sanctuary Cities movement. Sanctuary Cities at the moment I call very reactive. Um, what most Sanctuary Cities are doing is trying to uh, bring in uh, or, or stop you know, ICE enforcement activity. What if a sanctuary city said, hey, we're going to give over uh, municipally owned land for immigrants to farm. We're going well, to do all kinds yeah. of things. You know, th there are many, many opportunities, I think, through the sanctuary cities movement. To, That's interesting. Yeah, That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, in the couple of weeks since we, I've been thinking about this, you have really opened mm -hmm. my eyes to some concepts that, you know, I've, I've touched on. Yeah. I've sort of seen them through my own lens. But this has been a very interesting conversation. Um, I think you're right. I think we all need to look at our true diversity in our cities and, and make that happen. And see it as an opportunity, right. not as a problem. Right. And invite yes. and, 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 and reach out and look for that yeah. opportunity to connect and broaden. Because yeah. then we're going to be positioned for the future. That's right. And there is a, and a wonderful concept called contact theory. The more contact we have with people who are different to us, the more likely we are to support um, policies and plans that bring people together. And contact theory, I think, is it's a no-brainer. That's a wonderful note to end on. Thank, Thank you. you, Julian. Thank you. Really enjoyed this. Thank you.